Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Ellie Honig is a former state and federal prosecutor with extensive experience leading and managing criminal trials and appeals. In his work in the state of New Jersey and as a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, Ellie has directed major criminal cases against street gangs, drug trafficking organizations, illegal firearms traffickers, corrupt public officials, child predators, and white-collar criminals. He also serves as executive director of the Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities at Rutgers University. And in his spare time, Ellie is a CNN legal analyst where he just launched Cross Exam, a new weekly column. Ellie Honig, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Also joining us once again is Joe Lockhart. Joe, this is becoming a regular thing. It is. It's. Uh, I've got it on my calendar and I actually look forward to it. Our listeners told us they wanted to hear more from Joe, so we are giving the people what they want. Joe, welcome back. Great to be here. So, Ellie, we want to get your perspective on the Mueller investigation and kind of the steps that everybody's talking about the report and when the report's going to come out. But let's talk about what happens after that. Explain to our listeners how and why the process of submission for special counsel Mueller's report was different than the process for the independent counsel, Ken Starr. Yeah, so Ken Starr was operating under a different set of laws than Robert Mueller has operated under. The the statute that Ken uh, Starr was operating under is is defunct. Uh, It's gone. Um, so Ken Starr, I think we probably all remember that day, and I think it was 1998 when Starr's report just came out all at once to Congress and the public. We all downloaded it and read it. It was this 400-something page lurid narrative. The Mueller guidelines are different. The Mueller guidelines that he's operating under require him to file a confidential report that's the language of the regs, first with the attorney general. And then the attorney general has very broad discretion about whether and how to disclose the report to Congress and to the public. So it's sort of a a multi-step system that we're in now. And Joe, you've talked about how in the Clinton White House, you prepared for the transmission of the Star Report by putting together a rebuttal. How would it have been different politically had you been operating under the same rules as the Trump White House? Well, I think the first thing is you get a full look at the report. You get to know exactly what's in it. You get to prepare your rebuttal and uh, release it simultaneously with exactly what is going to be released. The second is you get to edit it, basically. It's the president's attorney general who he just put in, who we know he, – he talked about this with the attorney general in advance. So uh, they have much more discretion about – what will get released and what won't get released. Uh, it doesn't matter what they say about you know the president saying, oh, release it all, uh, but it's up to the attorney general. That's a political conversation that's going to happen. The third and perhaps most important, and, and, and Ellie can talk uh, more about this from a legal perspective, is we did not um, exert executive privilege. So we told Ken Starr, you know, we understood that he wasn't going to uh, respect any of the executive privilege of private conversations. And, you know, if Ty Cobb was still at the White House, you know, he talked about waiving executive privilege in the beginning, but he's not anymore. Uh, but those were three big things. So, you know, when when we knew the report was coming, uh, we had a big decision to make, which was to wait and read it and react and lose you know, the first blush, the first news cycle, the first two news cycles, or prepare a report. And we had, you know, a pretty intense internal conversation uh, with the lawyers arguing that you don't want to be fighting ghosts, as they said, you know, if we make a big deal about something that ends up not being in the report, people go crazy about, well, why are you so defensive about that? Versus the political people who said, we've got to frame this. Um, Uh, In a rare victory for the political people, um, you know, we won the fight. I I think the lawyers at the the end of the day saw the wisdom in it. And the interesting thing about the day the report came out is Star came out and there were a lot of lurid and sordid details in it. But the general framework of what the report said had already leaked uh, over many months. What hadn't leaked was exculpatory information. That was in the report the White House put out. Uh, so I think we actually did a pretty good job in those first couple of days 
uh, fighting uh, for what was the news. And, you know, uh, reporters always gravitate to something they haven't heard before, something that's new. Uh, so, so, again, completely different circumstances uh, than, than we're in right now. Do you remember how long it took you to read the report? Did you stay up all night? Two nights? No. It, you know, the, the report came out during the day. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's like any of these sort of fire drills that happen at the White House. And you divide it up. You find 15 people who have a good sense of both legal and political issues, and they take a section. And then everybody sits in a room and says, here are the headlines. With the Star Report, you know, I think we read it the same way everybody else read it, which is except for a small, very small group of people, nobody knew all of the details. Everybody knew the legal issues, the political issues, the obstruction, all of that. But what Starr focused on, and this is, you know, reportedly what Brett Kavanaugh pushed very hard for, was I'm going to tell you every sexual act that happened. I'm going to tell you where it happened. I'm going to tell you how long it lasted. And I'm going to tell you whether at the end of the day I thought it was uh, righteous or not. Uh, so that's, you know, what I think most people sitting in the White House weren't aware of and, you know, sort of read it and, you know, I think reacted like everybody did, which is, you know, ooh. It's a very technical, political <laughs> phrase. Uh, it is if you're on, I think it's Jimmy Fallon's show. That's a whole bit he did with Michelle Obama, I think. <laughs> Ew. Uh, uh, so, Ellie, you wrote last week in your new weekly column for CNN, Cross Exam, quote, we soon could face a constitutional dilemma leading down the same road previously walked by President Richard Nixon. The facts are different in some respects now, but the stakes would be the same. What is the constitutional dilemma? The dilemma here is going to revolve around executive privilege. And what that means here in a practical sense is if the president and his legal team is given a chance to review the Mueller report before it hits Congress or the public, they may well choose to exert executive privilege, which sort of simply put means conversations between the president and his close advisors are confidential and they will remain confidential and they shouldn't come out to the public or to Congress. Now, the last time we had a major test of executive privilege, and by the way, every president has exerted it in some contexts, uh, but the last major test of it was in 1974 with Richard Nixon with the infamous White House tapes. He received a subpoena uh, from the independent prosecutor, uh, resisted the subpoena, exerted executive privilege, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled unanimously 8-0. There was then Justice, future Chief Justice William Rehnquist recused himself, which is why you have eight, eight zero. It was sort of the ultimate good news, bad news ruling for Nixon. Good news, President Nixon, is we do recognize executive privilege. That exists. That is a thing. That is a legal doctrine. Bad news is you don't get to use it here because it's designed to protect military secrets, national security secrets, uh, and things of that nature. It is not intended as a generalized shield that any president can invoke just to guard uh, against potential criminal liability. So that was the ruling back in 1974. Here we are 40, 40, 40, 45 years later. And I'm trying to think what what distinctions would you argue there are? The only real thing I can think of is the Nixon case involved tapes. And I've heard some people say this. And today we'd be talking about other kinds of documents, maybe emails, texts, in-person conversations. But to me, that's a meaningless distinction. To me, the big difference maker is going to be you have an entirely different composition of the Supreme Court. We have nine new justices now. None of them were have been around that long. None of them were part of the 74 ruling. We have an ideologically, uh, I think, pretty polarized court. We have two of President Trump's own appointments, including Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And Justice Kavanaugh wrote extensively before he was nominated about the sort of uh, – he took a very wide view of executive powers and executive exemptions. And a lot of people thought that that was one of the main reasons Trump picked him. So I think if it comes up to if, – if it comes down to it, I think it's going direct to the Supreme Court, which it can in, in cases of certain high levels of national – uh, secu uh, national significance. And I think we're headed for a 5-4 ruling if it does. What about the national security issues at here play that they kind of loom large here? And that do you think that could be to President Trump's benefit? Yeah. So I think everyone would probably agree. And I've even heard Democratic Congress people agree that if there's truly national security information being discussed, that should be taken out. I don't I don't know that that will be much in dispute. I think what will be disputed is all of the various conversations not having to do with national security, should they be in or out? For example, what was the president's reason for firing Jim Comey? Was it because of Russia or was it because of the way he handled the Hillary Clinton email? What was Trump's intent? Did he, in fact, 
try to or think about firing Robert Mueller? Did he try to twist Jeff Sessions's arm into unrecusing or eventually resigning? Um, what was Trump's involvement in the aftermath of the Trump Tower meeting? Was he part of crafting this misleading or false public statement? And if so, what did he know and when did he know it? <laughs> Ticking off a whole laundry list here, but what was his intent in tweeting that Michael Cohen was a rat? Did he ever dangle pardons? Did he ever try to lure people not to cooperate by sort of saying either explicitly or implicitly you're not going to need to cooperate because I'm going to let you off the hook scot-free with a pardon. So none of that seems to me to involve national security, true national security or military information. But if there are little pieces of it that do, I think everyone can agree those should come out. To put a finer point on what uh, Ilya said, Nixon, I don't know that it was good news, bad news for Nixon. It was bad news for Nixon, the tapes came out. It was good news for the presidency yes. that executive yes. privilege. And one of the reasons why executive privilege was not invoked by President Clinton was that – and remember, he was a constitutional professor teaching con law before he became attorney general and then governor of Arkansas – was he was convinced and his lawyers were convinced that losing that case would weaken the executive privilege. The other thing is, and I think it goes to the national security thing, is we put too much importance on what we already know. Uh, and what we already know is a lot of this obstruction stuff and a lot of the Trump Tower meeting. This started as a counterintelligence investigation and it started very early, even before the election. And it's really interesting to me. I understand that you know counterintelligence investigations often aren't looking for a criminal prosecution. They're looking to get at the root of what could be a a threat to our country. I mean, how does that play uh, into uh, both what Mueller could put in his report and then the national security issues that surround um, what actually the public can see? Yeah, I think think you're right that the counter-intel type of materials are going to be much closer to that line of national security uh, and, and could well end up getting redacted. And by the way, when, when we say removed or redacted, let me be a little more precise. I don't mean actually fully taken out of the report. I just mean not available for public consumption, but they will still be part of the factual findings available to appropriate people within DOJ and perhaps Congress. Just a question of what the, what the public gets to see. So we can talk about the legal process, which is helpful, and there will be a lot of legal twists and turns and major battles ahead. But going forward, this is primarily a political process. So, Joe, what's the political path forward for the White House at this point? Well, you know, I I think Trump is stuck a little bit on a strategic point, not that that ever bothers him, because I do think he kind of does everything by feel and makes it up as he goes along. But on one hand, for two years, he's argued that this is a witch hunt. So if it's a witch hunt and he's done nothing wrong, why shouldn't the public see that he's exonerated here? Uh, That's a pretty hard one to argue. If you look at the numbers of uh, people who think what Bob Mueller is doing is appropriate and he's conducting the investigation well, those numbers are back on the way up. And the president's ratings on how he's handled it are are back down. They've moved around depending on – you know, a couple of times there are stories that have come out that have proved to be not accurate or not completely accurate, and that tends to move the numbers as in, oh, maybe they, they are going too far here. But as we approach the end of this phase, and I emphasize this phase, and we're going to we should talk more about what's next. Um, Mueller's public standing is is pretty high, uh, and that's in the face of a two year assault on him. Uh, and the president's uh, standing among the public on this issue is pretty low. So I think he has a hard time uh, making that case. You know, he tried to make the case um, on the South Lawn a few days ago where he talked about, I don't understand how when I'm doing the greatest job any president's ever done in the history of the world, how some guy could just come along out of nowhere, some guy who got no votes, who got no electoral votes, and just write a report out of nowhere. You know, it's ridiculous. It's wrong. It's a lie. Uh, we could take an hour on each of those subjects, why it's ridiculous, wrong, and a lie, but that would be boring. But it gives you some sense that I think he'll thrash around for a while. And what his overall strategy is, and, and it's not just on the Mueller report, it's it's on everything. You see it with John McCain. You see it with him attacking George Conway, all of these things that are in the ether right now. 
um, is he's really trying to tap into this idea of elites screw people in this country and we have legitimate grievances and I'm going to get 50.1% of those people who are just pissed off. And and my job as president is to whip them up into a frenzy over the next two years to get them so pissed off that no matter who the Democrats put up, they won't really understand just how badly we're all getting screwed. And if you're a White House staffer, I, I was thinking about this uh, recently, you know, how do you make a strategy around uh, the president's craziness? Well, you make crazy a strategy. And right now their strategy is crazy, which is you just let them go because each of these little things reaches someone. You know, it's each of these, you know, things, you know, there are people in the Republican Party who think John McCain is a turncoat. And John McCain has turned his back on Republican issues, you know, a dozen times over 20 years or, or so and gone and shown he's a maverick and an independent. Each attack, while it may come out of some neurosis or psychosis, is part of this overall effort to just stoke discontent in this country. And it's all they've got, you know, Um well, it's not – I mean they could be running on the economy, but that would be crazy. It would be boring. No one would watch it and you know, he'd get canceled for a new show. Ellie, I want to go back and talk about Justice Kavanaugh. I've, I've covered the D.C. Circuit extensively and, and read many of his old opinions. But you were talking about his writings on executive privilege. Can you expound on that a little bit and tell us what he's had to say? Justice Kavanaugh's views on executive powers in general have evolved quite a bit over the years. From when he started off working for Ken Starr, he seemed to have a narrower view. And then when he entered into the uh, academic and judicial world, he took a much broader view. But he wrote an article for the University of Minnesota Law Review in, I think, 2009. And he, he took a lot of positions that I think were fairly extreme. The president cannot be indicted legally. Now, it's currently DOJ policy not to indict the president, but the law on that is unknown. It's unsettled. No one's ever tried it. Uh, that a president should not be made to answer a subpoena, another big issue that I know Joe and others have had to contend with in the past coming from Justice Kavanaugh. Um, so he took a very expansive view of presidential powers. And I think I, I think it sort of stands to reason that he would take a very expansive view of executive privilege as well. And by the way, he's not the only one. William Barr, now our attorney general, and Matthew Whitaker, his predecessor, both talked about how uh, the president should be exempt from certain processes. Barr wrote a piece. This is his infamous DOJ memo that he wrote on his own. No one asked him for it, but he submitted this 20-page memo making the argument that, well, the president is free to do whatever he wants, essentially, with DOJ and cannot be charged with obstruction of justice. President's in charge of the executive branch. Executive branch includes DOJ. So he can start or shut down investigations for any reason he wants, and it cannot be criminal obstruction of justice. I think that's dead wrong. I think that's a very problematic view given where the evidence appears to be going in the Mueller case. Um, and that's something where we could also see some friction as between Mueller and William Barr. So I don't think it's a coincidence that three of President Trump's most important appointments or nominations um, that stand to have bearing on the outcome of this whole investigation have all taken that very broad view of presidential powers. So wear your SDNY hat for a second. Sure. Justice says the policy is the president can't be indicted. Uh, Mueller says – I, I don't set the policy, but if I set the policy, I'd indict the guy. Uh, SDNY, given their famous independence, is there any chance that they go rogue, right. indict, and then you know piggyback some of the the Mueller charges in a broad, you know, consolidate the case and bring to a grand jury all of these things, you know, in a way that you know, sort of just gets around uh, the guideline. Including against the president. Including against so, the president. Yeah. So let me break that down. Look, Southern District of New York is famously independent. People call called us the sovereign district of New York. It's all true. We're arrogant. We think we stand alone. We take pride in it. I embrace all that. Uh, we constantly disregarded these annoying bureaucratic things we had to submit. I remember there were timesheets we had to fill out. I was even told it a couple of times, don't even do those uh, at the <laughs> Southern District of New York. I mean, straight up defy them. Um, in fact, the only time 
Preet Bharara, who was my boss for three years, got angry at me, was when I referred to someone at Maine Justice as our boss. And he said, oh I, I won't gosh. say the name of who, but Preet looked at me and said, that person is not your boss and that person is not my boss. Oh my God. So, um, but, <laughs> but all that said, DOJ would not just straight up defy a specific policy, especially one that's been on the books for many years. Look, You mean SDNY would not straight up? Defy. Yeah, yeah they would yeah. not just say, we disregard the DOJ policy. We're indicting anyway. But there's another catch to that. I mean, this policy, by the way, it's important to remember, it was put on the books in 73. It was updated in 2000. And I think politically speaking, and people hate this policy, right? The questions I take for CNN for cross-exam, that may be the number one question I get. People hate this policy, Right. But it's been on the books. It's been updated now for 19 years. And it's really to me, it's really difficult politically after it's been in place for multiple administrations of both parties. Now, the only things I would say, there's two interesting sort of footnotes to that. Number one, uh, Neil Kotyal, who wrote, who was acting solicitor general of the United States, he wrote the regulations. He's out there on the media circuit, has said publicly that it's conceivable to him that the policy would not apply if the president committed a crime in order to win the presidency here. I guess that would be the campaign finance reforms. The other thing is Dave Kelly, who was the acting U.S. attorney who actually hired me in 2004, uh, said on on uh, network TV the other day that he would have thought hard about indicting. He was a little bit careful in what he said. But here's what I think w- would happen. If the Southern District felt strongly about it, they would push within DOJ hard. There were times when we were at Southern District where we called up DOJ and said, here's your policy. We really disagree with it. Here's why we don't think it applies and push very hard. So I think we could see the Southern District really making a strong pitch within DOJ. But Southern District is not going to go completely rogue and completely violate an existing policy. What's the statute of limitations on the campaign finance charges? And could he be charged theoretically after leaving office? Right. So good question. Uh, that would be five years, and most federal crimes is five years. Now, there's a there's a strange sort of a couple wrinkles here. First of all, so let's assume he cannot – let's assume a president cannot be indicted while in office. So the earliest he's out of office, barring an – let's put aside the possibility of an impeachment here, is January of 2021. You go back five years, you're just getting into sort of the beginning of the campaign, I guess, or the middle of the campaign. And if he wins twice, if he wins re-election, he's you're out. talking 2024, that's going to be longer than any statute of limitations. But – there is a good counter argument that the statute of limitations should be told, meaning put on pause, basically, because there are other situations that are sort of beyond the control of the prosecutor or the courts where you do toll the statute of limitations. For example, if someone's a fugitive, if they're on the run, then you can't run out. The, they don't, the law does not allow you to run out the clock while you're on the lam. And so I think there's a very good counter argument here that we could not indict the president because he's a president. And so during that time when he's exempt, it's kind of like being a fugitive, oddly, in a way. So the, the, the I, clock should be On told. the lamb in the White House. Yeah, I exactly. like it. <laughs> Hidden There's in plain, your book title. Can't get, can't get any weirder. Hidden in plain view. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think the counter counter argument to that is who said you couldn't indict him? Like you guys, DOJ, you decided internally you didn't want to. But nobody ever told you you can't, and maybe you even can. Is it safe to assume that if there's an internal battle uh, between SDNY and main justice, that we might, just might, read about that in the paper? <laughs> yeah, I think that could happen. I mean, Southern District's pretty good about not leaking. No one's as good as Mueller. But if it's just main justice in Southern District, uh, I think you might read about it. How realistic is Billions? <laughs> so Billions is – basically realistic but it's it's of course sensationalized but my favorite story about billions is when they were planning to do that show they sent various actors and producers to to spend time in our office and legend has it and this is well i know for sure that preet spent some time with some of the creators and i think paul Giamatti, who plays the u.s attorney so they could see what his real life is like and of course in the very first episode paul Giamatti, we learn has paul Giamatti's character has some strange predilections in the sexual world. So, of course, the joke with Preet was like, you didn't have to take him everywhere with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was a shameless plug for my buddy Brian Koppelman. So, um, Ellie, your time at SDNY, you you did a lot of OC work, organized crime. So I want to ask you about the head of the Gambino family that was recently uh, murdered in his own driveway by someone who was apparently trying to date his niece. And was allegedly totally unrelated to anything in the Gambino family's world. What was your thought 
your first thought when you heard about that? So my, my first thought was, wow, we're back in the old days here, right? And look, as prosecutors, you never want anyone to get hurt or injured. But when you see significant crimes like this, your adrenaline gets going and you just start thinking, right. who did this? Who could? And look, we have, uh, we had and still have a, an extensive intelligence network. So my first thought was, wow, the Gambino family has not had a really internal war since Paul Castellano was murdered in 1985 by John Gotti Sr. put out that hit. And I thought, oh my gosh, this are we gonna, about to go into another phase of a war? And my mind started churning about some of my prior defendants. I actually have a series of defendants who we convicted eight, nine years ago, who are all now getting out of jail. And they're a powerful Queens-based faction. So I started texting some of the agents I know. Like, do you think it could have been them? Are they making a move here on the boss? And if I had known that, you would have done this from a remote location. (laughs) (laughs) I'm safe. They don't care about me anymore. And I I didn't really get responses. I get it. I'm not in the government anymore. But my mind started whirling like, oh, I I wonder if it was this person. This person's about to get out of jail. This person just got out of jail. Turns out it was more of a personal thing, which is shocking. Supposedly. Supposedly, yeah. Um, Look, there is a scenario. This is outright speculation. But I've done cases where the mob has put a hit out on one of its own. Um, I did a Genovese case where they murdered the Genovese family sanctioned a hit on Al Bruno, who is a captain, which is a super, it's a made guy at a supervisory level. Sort of like there's a boss, an underboss, a consigliere, they're the top three. And then there's 10 to 15 captains who oversee each have a crew of 10 to 20 made guys and associates, right? So captain, think of it as like a middle manager, but, but guys you don't want to mess with. They put out a hit on Al Bruno, but the guy they got to do it was a young, non-Italian, sort of at, – at trial, he was termed a cowboy, but a, but a dangerous, aggressive guy who had nothing to do with the mob, right? And so I think part of the reason they went to get this guy to do it is because he was willing and able, but also to perhaps deflect attention from the fact that another section of the family put the hit out on him. So – I, I'm speculating, but uh, the reports are that it was personal, but I could see a scenario where someone put them up to it. Yeah, that's interesting. You should pitch a law school class on on uh, organized crime prosecution and or just the structure like of the mob. I, I learned something in the last well, actually, I didn't know. So I teach at Rutgers University and I brought in one of my cooperating witnesses. I can't really? say who. Yeah, to speak to the class. He actually- How ha- cool. He committed a murder. He he testified for me at a trial against the captain who ordered him to commit the murder. I, I tricked the class. I said- I gave them the transcript from the murder trial where he testified, and I said, I'm bringing in his FBI agent to class next week. So any questions that you would have about this guy's cooperation, you can ask the FBI agent. But I had secretly arranged for the FBI agent to come with him. Wow. And so when they walked into the class, the guy looks the part. I mean, he you take one look at him and you, you go, okay. Uh, there was sort of this, <gasps> in the class, I said, yes, this is him. You're going to get to ask him questions for the next two hours. And it was riveting. He's a great public speaker and really interesting guy. Well, now everyone's going to sign up for that class. <laughs> I would if I was still in law school. So there's lots of talk, particularly when you're looking at the Trump organization, that it was run like a crime family. How would you as a prosecutor approach the non-Russia material um, is this a classic RICO case? RICO and racketeering is a term that I think gets thrown a- around a lot right now in relation to the Trump organization. So let me give you a little background. So it, RICO is the federal racketeering law. It's an abbreviation, but most states have racketeering laws too. RICO first really came to prominence in the 1980s here in New York City when Rudy Giuliani used it as an aggressive tool to go after the mafia. He was very, very good at it. And it was thought of in the mafia context. But in the years since then, it has evolved and it is being used in a wider array of settings. It's being used against your traditional sort of street gangs and drug trafficking organizations. And I think you can readily see the comparison there. But it's used against corrupt corporations, corrupt political organizations, corrupt governmental organizations. I mean, it was just used uh, a week or two ago in the college admissions scam case. Some of the defendants were charged with racketeering there. So here's what it means. There are advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage is you have more work to do as a prosecutor. There's extra things that you have to prove to a jury. But the advantages are you get to show the jury sort of the whole picture. So basically what you have to show is the existence of some sort of organization or what we call an enterprise. It doesn't have to be a legal or it can be legal or illegal. You can charge the city of Atlanta was charged as a racketeering enterprise when they had a corrupt uh, mayor years back. So you have to show the existence of an organization, some sort of rank, hierarchy, or or institutional roles, and you have to show that organization committed a pattern of crimes, meaning two or more. The crimes have to be related to one another, 
and they have to be related to the organization. And sometimes the racketeering cases, I used to see defenses in mob cases when I did racketeering charges of maybe that crime was committed, maybe it wasn't, but it had nothing to do with the family. So hence, it's not part of racketeering. I do think if some of the allegations and reporting that's out there about the Trump org are proved out, they would fit the bill of a racketeering enterprise. And the other advantage from a prosecutor's point of view is you get to put in a lot more evidence about who the players were, about what the relationships were, about how the organization operated. There's also some technical advantages. There's ways that you can charge state law crimes under federal law uh, under the racketeering statute. You also can reach back farther in time. We were talking about statute of limitations Typically, statute of limitations is five years, but the way racketeering works is so long as any one of the crimes was committed within five years, then you can go all the way back as far as you want. I used oh, to, interesting. Yeah, I used to charge RICO against Gambino or Genovese family, and you'd have a couple acts that happened within five years, but then others that happened 20, 30 years ago. So you can loop in more, uh, more conduct that way. There's a RICO 101 for you in a minute and a half. I, yeah, I like that. So Mueller's report gets whatever it gets. What levers does Congress have to get the report, to get the full report, and to make it public? I think there's a couple things Congress could do. If Barr holds on to it or or cuts it back in significant ways, then we're going to be in interesting legal territory. I think Congress, first of all, they're going to subpoena it. People have said that. I think Schiff has said that and you know, some combination of Nadler, Cummings, uh, and Schiff will subpoena it. Now, what happens from there? We've already seen the White House sort of saying – you know, pound sand in response to congressional subpoenas. And I think the White House or or the AG, I guess the subpoena would go to the AG, may well say, no, you're not entitled to it. uh, And then we will have a legal fight. The other possibility is eventually uh, Congress could subpoena Robert Mueller himself or Rod Rosenstein himself. I mean, it would be incredibly dramatic, but it's possible. Um, But then you may see Mueller invoking certain or, or, or Rosenstein saying, well, they I think everyone agree. Again, they can't talk about national security stuff. Do they respect the invocation of executive privilege? Are there continuing investigations that they don't want to talk about? So that's been thrown out there, the idea of, well, we'll just subpoena Mueller. That's not quite the cure-all. If Robert Mueller did take a subpoena and did respond to it, it's not necessarily like, well, tell us everything you know now into the mic, please. Like There would be significant restrictions on that. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, there's a lot of debate within the Democrats about impeachment. And I think Nancy Pelosi has been very crafty in saying she has no interest in doing it. You know, is there a scenario where that becomes the lever, where we we actually have an impeachment process done behind closed doors uh, because of the national security? And, and politically, that's the tool they use that we know that crimes have been committed. We're not allowed to talk about them because they've been given to us and privilege, you know, either national security or privilege. But, you know, this these are high crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah, that, boy, that'd be a tough sell, though, to the American yeah. public, yeah. Both, especially yeah. to Trump supporters. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go in a back room here and not tell you what happened, but we'll just come out with a thumbs up, thumbs down. But I do think that the political calculus is really interesting. And Joe, Joe's been talking about that. I think Rudy Giuliani from pretty early on came to the conclusion of there's only two ways Trump can get hurt. There's indictment or impeachment. And I think Rudy, he said this, indictment's off the table. They can't indict. It's not quite correct. And by the way, he may not be thinking ahead far enough to when when his client's out of office. He undoubtedly can be indicted then. But I think Rudy's been playing the impeachment game and the politics game all along. And that's why they've gone with the the witch hunt and the rigged witch hunt and all of that. They're trying to rally political support because ultimately the people who vote on impeachment and perhaps eventually in the Senate on conviction or acquittal, they're politicians. And they're looking at their constituencies and saying, how's the polling looking in my district? Um, that's the nature of politics. So. Do you think President Trump would thrive under impeachment and that maybe he wants it? I don't think he wants it, but I think the Democrats are quite nervous. And I think this was probably what was animating Speaker Pelosi about giving him a a political and electoral bump. I mean, it happened for Bill Clinton historically, right? He got a bump in in approval ratings and Congress took a bath in their approval ratings. And I remember reading that very shortly after impeachment was initiated, something like 30, something in the 30s percent of the country thought impeachment was a good idea. And I think that's what Pelosi was probably anticipating. I mean, I think what Nancy was doing... um, Speaker Pelosi <laughs> was was doing a number of things. First and foremost, she was trying to get her caucus together. Uh, she didn't want her caucus being run by the extremes the way the Republicans had the Freedom Caucus running their majority in the House. Um, secondly, if nothing else, she's a vote counter. And she looks at the United States Senate 
and she looks at a Senate where the president of the United States four days in a row goes after a dead war hero. And of the 53 Republican senators, I think two of them criticized the president. The Senate majority leader praised John McCain without any reference at all to why he was praising John McCain. So I guess we should expect every seven months after his death, uh, Mitch McConnell will say John McCain's a great man without any context. So she knows it's going nowhere in the Senate. But she's what she's done is she's left maximum flexibility. The oversight's not going to stop. I mean, I think one of the real issues that we're, we're going to see in the coming weeks is the White House stonewalling uh, the oversight committees on, you know, whether it be documents, whether it be witnesses. That's going to be very uh, interesting. So the oversight is, you know, that's death by a thousand cuts as opposed to trying to do the whole thing. But she's left herself open that if there's something in the Mueller report or there's something that SDNY drops – uh, that is clearly a criminal act or a you know high crime or misdemeanor. A I think it's more in the category of abuse of power. Um, that you know she can change her mind. You know sometimes you lead the public and sometimes the public leads you. And I think what the Democrats are saying is, hey public, you're going to have to be behind us if we're going down this road. And right now you're not. And you know the really interesting thing is. The number of four uh, people who want impeachment has is now at a very low level, you know, over you know the last eighteen months, and the group that's gone down is Democrats. Democrats be, are taking the lead from from their leader that there's another way to do this. At this point, we're just not going to see it. I wonder if a bit of that is just a practical consideration on the part of Democrats who are now looking at the calendar saying it's pretty close to 2020 at this point. We're under two years. Why potentially have this thing backfire on us? And and I thought Pelosi's points where it's interesting because I see them differently politically and legally. Politically, I, she's a master and I know nothing politically. So I, I think you hit it on the head what she was trying to do. Legally, I looked at what she said and I didn't like it because I said, well, I worry that she was raising the bar on what types of crimes qualified for impeachment, right? It could be read to say, not all crimes are going to do it. She said something like it has to be compelling evidence of a very serious crime. That well, What if it turns out he committed a crime but not one of the sort of super crimes in office? The other thing that I was a little bit wary, and again, I'm being legalistic here, was that she was raising the bar on the, the, what, what's the standard of proof here. Now, there's no clearly defined standard of proof, but it made it sound like almost played into this smoking gun argument, which Trump and Giuliani have seized on. If there's no smoking gun, then they've got nothing. And very, very few cases in real life ever have a smoking gun. And so – but the public doesn't understand that. The public watches Law & Order and CSI and thinks every case, where's your smoking gun? I mean we fight against that in real trials, in real courtrooms. But the vast majority of your cases in reality are made with sort of a collection of evidence and you build the case up. And, and there's not always that one piece of evidence that's just a headshot. So I, I, I don't want – I don't think Pelosi's remarks should be taken as – we need a smoking gun in order to proceed. Well, the it's very difficult uh, as a lawyer in the middle of a trial to stand up and say, Your Honor, I've changed my mind. Uh, I now have a different defense. <laughs> yeah. As a politician, I've seen it done. <laughs> as a politician, it's seamless to change your mind. <laughs> All you have to do is stand up and open your mouth. Put so, on I, uh, yes, yeah, exactly. You're allowed to be for it before you are against it. Well, it is always wonderful to have someone join us from the Sovereign District of New York. Ellie, thank you for being here. It's thanks great to have me. legal and political input here on this episode. Joe, thanks for coming back. Glad to be here. Believe it or not, there were other things going on in Washington last week. And while we still have Joe here, let's pick his brain a little bit about what's been going on this past week and talk about some of the, the recent news. So, Joe, this week, Bernie Sanders hired David Sirota as a speechwriter and senior advisor. Who is David Sirota? David Sirota is a guy who uh, has been in and around Democratic politics for now 20 years. He was one of the original people at the Center for American Progress and had a falling out there because he felt like it was too corporate. Um, he's one of these guys who... Uh, hates corporations, thinks that anyone who works there is evil. Uh, so that's David. Here's what's really interesting about this story, and here's why I think some people uh, are worked up about it. Uh, the Democrats, by and large, have done a pretty good job about not going after each other. 
Bernie Sanders has talked about he's a different kind of politician. It's all about the ideas. Well, David Sirota, over the last four or five months, acting as a so-called journalist, has been ripping apart people who are opposing Bernie Sanders, who are running against him, whether it be Kamala Harris, whether it be uh, Beto O'Rourke, whether it be um, Elizabeth Warren. It's just, you know, he's he's launched these, you know, high-profile hit pieces. And during, the, during that time, you know, I, I've tweeted a couple times that, hey – you know, this is coming from the Sanders people and, you know, lots of denials. There's, you know, this is, you know, I'm running a different kind of campaign. Well, it turns out um, that those of us who were suspicious were absolutely right, uh, that he was working with Sanders, apparently wrote his announcement speech at the same time ripping apart other Democrats. And I think it creates a big problem for Sanders and it's adding to a problem for Sanders. He talks about being a different kind of candidate. But this is now the second or third example where he hasn't been transparent. He's been talking for years about releasing his tax returns and hasn't done them. God, I can't imagine there's anything in there that would uh, be uh, problematic. But the fact that he's not being transparent is a problem. And it goes to his Achilles heel, which is the majority of the Democratic Party are Democrats, not socialists. And while he does whip up people with ideas, some of them very good ideas, I think the majority of the party is open to looking at him and voting but suspicious. And when you bring in a story like this, it gets everybody's um, guard up. Uh, so I think uh, while it while staffing decisions generally don't mean anything, I think it's a pretty big deal for, for Sanders. And I've heard a lot in the last few days of people who are very surprised that this happened and very disturbed. Yeah, it's been an interesting tone in the Democratic Party, particularly all of those that are running. I recall recently Senator Kamala Harris, when asked about all of the new entrants in the race, she said it's an embarrassment of riches. Has there been a time in, in your political experience that all the Democrats or even all of one party have been supportive and kind of calling it an embarrassment of riches, talking about the people that they'll be running against. Yeah, it's so I, positive. Yeah, I don't want to I want to don't want to be too Pollyannish. There's been stories that campaigns have been placing about other campaigns. But on the highest level, it's been pretty uh, I think people understand in this dynamic when people are so united in the party of getting rid of Trump that taking on another candidate directly and and you know doing a hit piece on them not on I disagree with Medicare for all or I think your tax cut is too big too small too wide whatever uh, doing things that are not on the issues I think most Democrats are going to voters are going to view that negatively I have never seen this party so uh, united on any one particular subject than they are in getting rid of Donald Trump. There are lots of divisions, um, ideological divisions uh, uh, between – within voters in the Democratic Party, within our candidates. But I don't think any of these candidates want to be the first person who comes out and starts trashing someone else because that won't go over well with voters. And I think Sanders dipped his toe in it this week inadvertently and I actually think it's going to hurt him. Moving on, President Trump, he's always active on Twitter. He's long been happy to engage in, in Twitter battles and Twitter war. This week seemed a little different or a little ramped up. Why were Trump's attacks on George Conway and John McCain so newsworthy? Well, you know, it's it's the, the classic uh, dilemma, I think, for journalists, um, which is take the tweet seriously and you sort of diminish the president and the presidency – don't take them seriously, and then you normalize this, you know, crazy behavior. Uh, so let's take them separately. I mean, Conway's onto something that there is something mentally uh, off about this president. I, I was thinking about this this morning. Everyone in my lifetime who's assumed the presidency, the presidency has changed them. The presidency has not changed Donald Trump one bit. He is the same. Bully, lying, uh, prevaricating, dissembler, uh, fraud that he was as a real estate developer in New York as he is 
in the White as as president, and that's remarkable. It's remarkable that sitting in the Oval Office with all of the levers to power have not put a dent in his insecurities, and it all comes back to insecurities. Anyone who attacks him in any way or even disagrees with him is someone who he then he has to knock out somehow with some verbal punch, and he's indiscriminate about it. John McCain was seen as a war hero when John McCain was alive. John McCain, having passed, enters you know the pantheon of great Americans. And for Donald Trump to go after him day after day after day uh, just shows how insecure he is and how much projection there is to why do why don't people think of me as a great man? Why does everyone always criticize me? You know, to use his word, sad, all caps, and you know, says something about his character. The Conway thing is really interesting. You know, Conway. Um, there's there's loads of theories about what's going on between Kelly and Conway and her husband George. I couldn't care less, and I and even if I cared, I wouldn't want to talk about it because it's it's a marriage, you know, and it's between them. I think it does expose another of these character flaws of the president, which he needs to show he can dominate, and he needs to in this case he's showing that he can dominate his senior advisor Kellyanne Conway by making her take sides publicly in, in this debate. So now she has taken sides and she's defending the president, not her husband. And Trump sits there in the Oval Office and says, oh, I've dominated someone else. Uh, it's absurd. It makes him look small. It makes, you know, Conway look like, you know, the greatest legal scholar in the history of the world and, you know, uh, political strategist. He's neither. I mean, he's a very well-respected lawyer in Washington, but, you know, he's he's not headed for the Supreme Court as far as I know. But it, it goes to the pathos of a pretty disturbed guy sitting in the Oval Office. And, you know, there's a little bit of history here. James Carville and Mary Madeline are, were known as the you know, political odd couple. Mary Madeline spent eight years of the Clinton presidency criticizing Bill Clinton, never got under Bill Clinton's skin. Um, and, you know, if maybe it did occasionally, which I don't remember, he certainly wasn't going to do it in public and certainly wasn't going to take it out on James. And, you know, famously, uh, and the same goes for George Bush, you know, the other way around. James was pretty critical of uh, of Bush and it, it never got personal. But, you know, even more famously, uh, President Nixon's attorney general, uh, John Mitchell's wife, Martha, was a voracious critic uh, of the president. But, you know, you, you, you didn't have Nixon publicly trying to uh, force loyalty and break up a family based on his need to be told that I am the, 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 the meta uh, alpha male here. And it's really pathetic. It is really pathetic. And, you know, I, I hate to bring them into it, but there's kids here, kids who have phones. They see this. And, you know, maybe mommy and daddy explain it to them at home. But this is a president who's basically said, I don't care if you're a gold star family. I don't care if you're a respected judge. I don't care if you're a reporter that has a physical disability. I am going to demean you and defeat you because that is the only way I can feel good about myself. And that's a really scary psychological profile for a president of the United States. So our final lightning round question I want to get to is talking about a case that has been really interesting uh, in the past week. Devin Nunez's cow on Twitter. As we all know, Devin Nunez sued Twitter and a couple of handles on Twitter for $250 million for defamation. And as any good defamation lawyer will tell you, suing for defamation usually ends up uh, making the content that you're worried about more popular. And I think that has been proven true with now more Twitter followers following Devin Nunez's cow than Devin Nunez. But what do you make of this suit? Well, Devin Nunez is, you know, one of the brightest guys in Washington. So I was utterly surprised uh, that, okay, I, I, <laughs> I couldn't resist that. Devin Nunez is an idiot and he proved it again. He's been proving it his entire adult life, but he proved it again here. I've learned this week there's something called the Streisand effect, which is if you really want something not to be covered, it's going to be covered. And the Streisand effect is she tried to uh, remove all of the aerial pictures of her house. 
and allowed the internet to send them to everyone. So this is um, you know ridiculous suit on legally. It's it is embarrassed uh, Nunes when you didn't think he could be embarrassed anymore. But there is an issue here. There's an interesting play here, and it goes to a little bit of the old Carl Rove, attack somebody's strength uh, and make it your strength. Donald Trump got elected because he used social media better than uh, anyone else, the, the way he used Facebook, the way he used Twitter. What I think Nunes is doing, and I think what you're going to see, is this whole idea of this tool that they use better than anyone else being biased against them. Twitter, you know, shadow bans them, and Facebook uses their algorithm to promote. And the reality is the exact opposite is true. Trump and the Republicans now define themselves on who their enemy is. Even as they use these tools very effectively, attack these tools. Uh, Nunes did it, just did it in an incredibly stupid way and made himself look stupid. It's a very technical political term, stupid. I'm surprised that it took, what, 28 hours for the cow to get, you know, the three or 400,000 followers. Over half a million uh, now. now. Now over half a million. We'll be at a million, you know, two million, five million. You know, the old network effect uh, takes hold. There's part of me that wants to laugh at this, which a lot of people have. There, are, There's also part of me that wants to see one, two, three, four Republicans in Washington who are the grown-ups to stand up and get everybody in a room and say, knock it off. We're killing ourselves here. This is incredibly stupid and ridiculous. And I think you, you're seeing two different dynamics in Washington. We talked a little bit about impeachment and Nancy Pelosi. I think, I think Nancy Pelosi is doing a very good job. She's got a very dynamic caucus, but she's doing a very good job of managing it. The absolute scandal of the last week is the truly loathsome things the president said about John McCain and Republicans in the House and the Senate sitting on their hands because they look at their own political fortunes and say, I can't afford to criticize the president. And I think when you get to that point, it's like, what the hell am I doing here? I'm making $200,000 a year or something at a job where I spend all my time raising money and kissing ass, and I can't even stand up for what I believe in. That's when you got to start thinking about, like, why am I in Congress? You know, if the boldest thing you can do is tweet, that's about as impotent as you get. Joe Lockhart to be continued. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 